and welcome to the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. My name is Tiffany Agard, and I am the Editor-in-Chief at The Review. This podcast will explore a variety of policy issues through interviews with figures from around the world. The next few episodes have been adapted from a live speaker series conducted during the 2020 to 2021 academic year. In this episode, you'll hear from our senior editor, Cosmos Museum, as we sit down with Sheila Barakamusime, Chief Counsel at the World Bank, to discuss the challenges and policy interventions with the World Bank in the COVID-19 era. Our speaker today is uh, uh, Sheila Braka-Musime. I hope I got the pronunciation very well. Um, uh, she is um, a chief counsel at the World Bank, uh, having had several portfolios on issues of public policy and law, whether in Africa, in South Asia, or so, such other emerging markets within the world. Before the World Bank, she had attended uh, Harvard Law School, where she got her LLM in law. Um, she, will be join, she will be managing and speaking to us today together with uh, her partner, or will I say associate in the office, uh, Paige Cassidy. Paige, do you want to uh, introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, I am Paige Cassidy. As you mentioned, I'm working um, in Sheila's department, the legal department at the World Bank um, on some related COVID issues, and I've worked with her on this presentation. So I'm happy to be here and and, uh, meet you all. Thank you, Paige. So our format will be that uh, the speaker will make the opening remarks, and then we will follow with an interactive section, a question and answer section. You can always raise your hand uh, through the apps, or you indicate by sending a message in the chat box, asking your question, and then I can read it out. But meanwhile, we want it to be very interactive and also we want it to be uh, sharp and cryptic. So keep your questions short so that we can accommodate as many people as possible. So with that, and without much ado, I welcome uh, Sheila Braka-Musime to lead us in this conversation about the World Bank in the COVID era, the challenges and some of the policy interventions so far. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um... Cosmos, thanks so much for this uh, introduction and for the invitation here. Um, Paige and I are happy to join you and I want to recognize all um, the work she's doing at the, at the World Bank on, on several issues to do with COVID and uh, fragility and, and all sorts of issues. So we're, we're really happy to, to be here and to be invited by you. And uh, it's very exciting to be at Cornell. I mean, this is a uh, um, uh, one of the world-renowned uh, universities, uh, you know, with deep thinkers like all of you here. So it's uh, it's an honor for us to to speak here with you. Um, and I hope everybody's doing as well as can be during these un- unusual times. Um, so I'm very happy to be here to discuss the World Bank's recent work on uh, legal and policy challenges associated with COVID-19. Um, what I will do is I will go over a, a presentation uh, just to, to, to give you a broad landscape of some of the legal issues and policy issues that we've been encountering. And then there'll be time for questions and answers at, at the end. Um, just before, I, as I start, I, I, I think you all know this, but I just want to make sure I'm clear about who we are, who, who we represent. So the World Bank Group comprises International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, IBRD, 
which marked uh, 70 years um, uh, of its establishment following World War II. Uh, we marked that this year. Uh, it's also comprised of International Development Association, which is uh, the lending arm of the bank, which was established in 1960 to provide financing to the less developed countries um, of the world. Um, so IBRD and IDA are, are where Paige and I, and I work, uh, but the World Bank Group is much broader. It also has International Finance Corporation. It has the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, the International Center for the Settlement of, of Investment Disputes. So it's five um, organizations in one group. Um, uh, the, the World Bank proper, so I've talked about the World Bank Group, the World Bank proper comprises IBRD and IDA. So the first two I talked about, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and International Development Association. Uh, but one fun fact, the, the word the World Bank does not appear anywhere in the Articles of Agreement of, of, the, of, of either IDA or IBRD. And so maybe some homework after this is for you to find out where the word the World Bank um, originated from. Uh, but that's what we are commonly known as. Another not so fun fact is that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, is not part of the World Bank Group. It's right across the road from us. Um, it's in Washington, DC. It's a sister organization uh, with whom we coordinate very closely. Our membership is more or less the same. So uh, the Articles of Agreement of IBRD state that you can't be a member of IBRD unless you're a member of IMF, for instance. Uh, so it's a very close um, organization to us, but it's not part of the same uh, organization. And we also work in partnership with several MDBs and bilateral aid agencies. And I think the COVID pandemic is one, uh, of, uh, is one of those areas where uh, the, the value of partnerships has really shown itself. Um, so as, as you know, also we are a shareholder cooperative. Uh, we are formed by our member countries. And so we work to help them through the pandemic uh, and, and to build back better. And they are also part of the decision-making through their representatives on our World Bank board. So it makes the role of any practitioner in the World Bank very interesting because we are uh, lending or providing funding to uh, members, to, to, to countries that are also our membership that also make the decisions uh, in the institution. So, um, I, I want to start with a bit of background on the bank's overall uh, COVID-19 response. The World Bank is making available up to 160 billion in financing over 15 months. Um, this is going until June, 2021. And, and this financing um, uh, is tailored towards the health, economic and social shocks that countries are facing, including 50 billion of IDA resources, uh, this is to the poorer countries, on grant terms and on highly uh, concessional terms. Um, 12 billion, you may, those who follow the World Bank closely would know that um, 12 billion of, of that was specifically approved to help countries with the purchasing of, of COVID-19 vaccines, purchasing and deployment of COVID-19 vaccines. Um, it will also provide, of course, finance, uh, technical support so that countries can prepare to deploy their vaccines at scale. And we do this in collaboration, obviously, with international partners. Uh, we have, you know, weekly um, uh, calls with the, the Gavi Alliance and, and, and the Vaccine Alliance and others. Uh, we're also working worldwide to redeploy re resources. So we have existing projects, obviously, um, that we're financing in, in many of our countries. 
And when an emergency like this hits, we try and deploy those resources uh, towards that emergency. And so that has been a big part of the work that we've been doing. And the overall aim of this response, really, the COVID-19 response, has, is to help developing countries strengthen their pandemic response, increase disease surveillance, improve public health interventions, and help the private sector continue to operate and, and sustain jobs. Um, and so we've, you know, we've been uh, involved in several country operations, which have ranged from um, helping with cash transfers to poor people, food security. Uh, there's a big target, uh, you know, target on, on, on the most vulnerable groups, women and, and forcibly displaced communities. And, and we do all this through strengthening health systems, monitoring and prevention, and, um, you know, scaling up social protection. Again, you know, sort of this uh, safety nets that countries um, uh, have or should have. Uh, we are also very concerned about the business community and preserving jobs and procuring medical equipment and, and supplies. And then next, you know, you'll see this map which gives a global overview of the bank's COVID-19 projects. Uh, it reflects financing for projects that are a part of the COVID-19 Strategic Preparedness and Response Program. This is the S SPRP, which is uh, the framework through which the bank is providing support. Um, and, and, and this map also shows projects that receive COVID-19 funding through restructurings, redeployment, and reallocation of existing resources. As you can see, the bank currently, uh, as of March 4th of this year, it has 178 COVID-19 projects that are active or completed across 111 countries. And this is for a total of 10.6 billion in financing. And this has all occurred at record pace. You can, you can imagine uh, since uh, the pandemic hit with all of us working from home and across the world in all our, our offices, um, it has been quite an immense uh, effort on the side of, of World Bank staff, as well, of course, as our member country staff. Um, in fact, last year in May, the World Bank Group's emergency operations to fight COVID had already reached 100 developing countries. And I remember just you know, sitting in my house and we were just chunking them out and, and this has uh, reached 70% uh, of the world's population. So quite significant. Um, these projects are spread relatively evenly across all regions. Um, in the Africa region and the MENA country where my current practice is focused, uh, the COVID-19 response has included financing. It has included policy advice, technical assistance to help countries strengthen pandemic response and healthcare systems and cope with urgent health needs of the pandemic and support safety net systems, including cash transfer projects. Most recently, our effort, um, actually the large part of our effort right now is, is uh, supporting countries in, in their purchase and, and distribution of COVID vaccines and, and strengthening vaccine systems. And we're working closely with uh, uh, partners like COVAX, who you've, you've heard about, uh, which was convened by uh, you know, this, this global partnership for equitable access to, to vaccines. Uh, as well as with the African Union Vaccine Acquisition Task Team and several other um, uh, groups that are doing whatever they can to get vaccines into people's arms. And so the, the legal and policy issues have arisen and, and these are things that have been new to practitioners like myself and others at the World Bank Group. Um, obviously the, uh, these projects are taking place in a, a very complex legal and policy environment um, with a variety of issues that uh, we at the bank and our member countries have had to take into account. 
Uh, we've had to learn on the fly uh, and meet this moment with new legal and policy issues that have been arising and are still arising to, to, up to today. So, um, you know, there, there are several legal issues as we're going to go over quickly. Um, there have been diverse legal responses to the pandemic by our member countries. Uh, we've seen also um, access to justice challenges, including um, in relation to gender-based violence. Uh, there's been huge impacts on commercial and contractual relations. Debt distress and debt management has been, um, it's been an ongoing issue in our institution, but it's very acute right now for many of our countries. Um, our countries have also faced lab labor and employment issues and um, obviously health law issues um, such as testing, medical equipment, therapeutics and vaccines. Uh, we've also had to tackle issues related to data protection and privacy. Uh, as you can imagine, an institution like ours is um, a, a big target for uh, the NGO community. And so, um, you know, in, in many instances, uh, when, when countries, when, when there have been issues that have arisen, legal challenges that have arisen in a country and, and particular groups of people are unable to get a response from the member country, um, they turn to the World Bank because they know that uh, we're very sensitive to issues like this and, and, and very responsive. And so our policy framework has to be intact to be able to foresee and respond to any of the legal issues uh, that come up. So I want to give a brief overview of some of these issues and, and then leave some time for questions. Um, so as you can imagine, it's very important for governments to have a strong legal foundation for their COVID-19 response efforts. Um, countries have enacted a range of responses to COVID-19, but to do so, they, they generally utilize a number of, um, of, of, of legal authority. And we've seen that also in the US, you know, different things that are being triggered legally for emergencies to be declared, whether it's at the federal government or at state level. So we've seen some countries have declared emergencies under their constitutions to enable them to take extraordinary measures. So Ethiopia is one example, which used its constitution to declare a state of emergency in early April of last year. Other countries have relied on existing public health or disaster management laws to impose COVID-19 response restrictions. So we've seen, for instance, in, in Burkina Faso, which declared a state of health alert under an a public health code. And this has enabled it to establish certain restrictions to combat COVID-19. Other countries have enacted new legislation, um, which have had to pass through parliament in, in a quick amount of time. So Ghana, for instance, uh, passed the Imposition of Restrictions Act of 2020, which enabled the government to then impose certain restrictions. Um, legal foundations are also analyzed by and derived from court decisions uh, in various countries. We've seen courts uh, people take courts to uh, governments to court to hold them accountable for their COVID-19 response measures. Um, we saw, for instance, last year in, that the Malawi, the Malawian High Court, uh, temporarily enjoined the government from implementing a lockdown due to certain constitutional concerns. And of course, this was taking place in Malawi during a time of um, uh, uh, political uncertainty with the, the, the government, the election of the government having been challenged in court as well. And so we had, we saw the high court lifting, um, um, you know, basically saying it was unconstitutional for the government to uh, impose a lockdown. 
And then we see an, an area that's you know, near and dear to our hearts, which is access to justice. Um, the COVID-19 crisis has had a significant impact on judicial systems across the world. Um, court systems are having to adapt to the, this new normal of lockdowns, you know, which can occur anytime. Uh, and, there, and these things are happening already in a very uh, overburdened justice system. So, you know, courts are having to conduct meetings and virtual trials uh, through video conferencing. They're having to use e-filing. Um, they're closing or restricting public access to, to court buildings. And um, you can imagine in some countries where they don't have uh, the mechanisms, e-systems in place. I mean, in some countries, we're still working to support them to do that. It's been, it's, it's really proven to be quite a challenge, both for the judges, but, but more critically for people who are waiting for trial, people sitting in jails waiting for trial. Um, so you see, you'll see here, you know, a, 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 an access to justice um, graphic here. Uh, you know, this, this has not prevented that, and, and which is really good. It, it's, um, it has not prevented um, you know, court, court cases from continuing, right? Um, you know, you have the, uh, uh, an overburdened uh, justice system, which, has, which have, was already stretched prior to the pandemic and courts trying to figure out how to, do, how, how to, to, to move along and, and get justice done. Um, and, and so there have been increased backlogs due to COVID-related court closures. There have been surges of litigation around pandemic and reopening related claims. You can imagine that, you know, we're going to talk about employment issues and other business issues, but just a, a surge in litigation that has occurred. And, and th this is a significant factor to consider as we move forward through and past the immediate COVID crisis, this backlog is really going to continue. An issue that we've been also very concerned about because our institution sees gender-based violence as a development issue. Uh, if half the population of, of, of people, you know, and we, we, we hear that a third of women are subject to some sort of um, uh, gender-based violence in their lifetime, if, if, if that part of the population is unable to access justice, it, it's really a big issue for us. Um, so it's, it's a very vulnerable group that we are concerned about. And, and we've seen that um, some of the COVID response policies, such as lockdowns, quarantines, stay-at-home orders and travel restrictions, have in fact increased the risks of gender-based violence, particularly intimate partner violence to women and girls. And this is especially acute in countries where there is no functioning 911 or other similar number to call. So we've seen that there've been surges of um, incidents of domestic violence, uh, you know, in some countries initially reporting surges of 25 to 30% of an already high number. Uh, and it's therefore important to identify policies and, and strategies uh, to ensure access to justice for, survi for survivors of GBV, uh, for instance, by um, enhancing access to legal services and judicial protective measures during the COVID crisis. Uh, some countries have been very um, uh, creative in how they've, they've done this, increasing the flexibility and remote capability of judicial systems increasing judicial services awareness of and responsiveness to gender specific needs and engaging in awareness campaigns regarding existing judicial services and their modifications. And this is centered around supporting, enhancing and building upon existing justice sector mechanisms rather than attempting to create new ones. 
And it's, it's important to view these issues in the context of other overlapping vulnerable groups, such as refugees, migrants, and persons with disabilities, who may also uh, face particular barriers in access to justice. Um, you may or may not know that the bank, the World Bank um, has a specific financing window for countries that are hosting refugees to, to make sure that the refugees are uh, adequately cared for. And so we see additional layers of, of vulnerability. Imagine a woman who's a, a subject to GBV within a refugee camp. Uh, it really poses very um, critical issues that we have to think about as we design our operations. And then in, in this, you know, we've seen also that um, as you look at businesses that have been impacted by the crisis, there's been, uh, there's been a, a range of approach, approaches by countries to deal with the impacts of COVID-19 on businesses. The COVID-19, this pandemic has severely disrupted uh, commercial and contractual relations globally. Many individuals and companies have been in breach of or unable to perform contractual obligations. And um, individuals and business tenants have been defaulting on rents because obviously they're not making as much money as they could. Um, governments themselves are grappling with questions of performance, breach and payments under contracts with third party creditors, suppliers and vendors. And we've seen that contractual, some, some contractual disruptions may be addressed through force majeure provisions. Um, but this all depends on the wording uh, of the nature of the obligation, the contracts. Other remedies um, may also be available. Uh, and, and so there is likely to be a considerable amount of arbitration and litigation on this topic, which could contribute to the overburdening of justice systems. To deal with this, some countries have adopted contractual standstill laws to temporarily relieve parties from contractual obligations. Um, one example um, is, is the Singapore's COVID-19 Temporary Measures Act in 2020 which protects certain contractual parties from lawsuits concerning non-performance or defaults due to COVID-19 for, for a period of six months. The act provides parties with a space to make necessary adjustments by deferring um, contractual obligations. Um, it allows them to suspend rent, rental payments for up to six months, uh, preventing forfeiture of deposits paid and disallowing insolvency proceedings for six months. Uh, and in the case of such standstill laws, the parties' contractual obligations, as you can imagine, are not cancelled. They are merely suspended and they must be fulfilled eventually. So there's going to be that uh, crunch time where you have to pay back rent uh, as well as rent that is currently due. And, and we've seen that there are other legal and regulatory responses that um, some countries have taken into account. Um, uh, contractual standstill laws, obviously, which we've just discussed in Singapore and in other countries. Uh, we've seen that there's been some temporary suspension of insolvency and bankrupt bankruptcy regimes. Some countries like Bulgaria, Germany, and Turkey have, uh, have used that. Relaxing tax obligations and filing requirements. We've seen this in a few countries as well. Uh, Albania, Cameroon, Ghana, Poland, Uzbekistan. Uh, for example, in Cameroon, the government provided temporary tax accommodation to businesses directly affected by the crisis through tax moratoria and deferred payments. Um, and we've seen also that the, uh, some countries have instituted corporate compliance waivers and have enabled renegotiation of contracts, including government contracts. And this has been helpful uh, during this period. But all this involves a delicate balancing act of policy concerns. On the one hand, there's a need to act promptly to 
alleviate uh, economic catastrophe from the effects of COVID-19. But on the other hand, there's a need to protect or restore market confidence and to preserve the freedom of contract, both of which may be affected by such COVID-19 measures. So it's, it's a tough balance um, that, that we've seen our member countries having to deal with. I want to talk a bit about debt distress and debt management, which is another pressing issue for, for the World Bank as an institution, as it is for um, the INF and other um, multilateral development banks. Um, debt vulnerabilities have increased in recent years in emerging market and low income countries. The total external debt of low and middle income countries totals 8.1 trillion at the end of 2019, of which a third was owed to private creditors. More than half of IDA countries, which is, as I said, the, the um, lending arm of the World Bank group that gives concessional uh, either grants or non-concessional loans to countries, or concessional loans to countries. Um, more than half of those IDA countries today are in debt distress or at a high risk of debt distress. Assessments by the World Bank group have found that less than half the countries reviewed met minimum requirements for debt recording. So we don't know the full story, right? They're not reporting as, as they should. And this was prior to COVID. This was by the end of 2019. The COVID pandemic, pandemic has exacerbated an already very difficult situation in, in public debt vulnerabilities of, of many of our countries. The fall in revenue uh, that they've encountered along with emergency spending has pushed government deficits and debts in low and middle income countries to the highest levels since the global financing crisis. The pandemic is pushing a growing number of these countries into debt distress. So supporting our poorest countries to fight COVID-19 is the World Bank's most urgent priority. We are deploying unprecedented support to enable countries to focus on responding to the pandemic rather than the repayment of creditors. So the World Bank Group is working to encourage comprehensive debt solutions that involve at least four elements. The first is debt suspension. Second is debt reduction. That is debt resolution. And the fourth is debt transparency. You may have read in the press about the debt service suspension initiative, otherwise known as DSSI. This is an initiative that was established by G20 countries at the urging of the World Bank and the IMF. It provides eligible countries a temporary suspension of debt service payments owed to their official bilateral creditors. It took effect in May, on May 1st, 2020. And since then it has delivered more than 5 billion in relief to more than 40 eligible countries. In all, 73 countries are eligible for temporary suspension of debt service payments or to their official bilateral creditors. The G20 group of countries has also called on private creditors to participate in the initiative on comparable terms. The suspension period was originally meant to end on, on December 31st of 2020, but this has been extended now through June of 2021. We suspect that there'll be a, a further extension of the DSI and this is really much needed um, to, uh, to create fiscal space um, for economic investments. Um, but some countries still need beyond this DSSI, which is only with bilaterals, as we've said, um, you know, countries need 
help beyond that. And so we've seen the operalization of, of the common framework, which is a common framework for debt treatments beyond DSSI. It's intended to help countries with either liquidity or solvency problems, including debt restructuring. And there is also the sustainable development finance policy that the World Bank has put in place, which does a number of things, including debt transparency, debt sustainability, you know, pushing countries to develop policies that help them to, to sustainably manage their, their debt. And we've also seen calls for, you know, the issuance of new uh, special drawing rights. And, and all these things are going to be critical. A comprehensive approach is going to be needed to help countries um, get out of this debt crisis. Um, so, you know, this is needed critically for debt and economic challenges. But the most important thing is, uh, is that vaccines are deployed as fast as possible because the more the vaccine deployment um, delays, the harder it's going to be for uh, investors and, and others to have confidence and, 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 and for the, there to be spending in the markets, which would, would then allow uh, economies to rebound. So really the health response remains the most critical uh, while we are obviously um, helping countries on all other responses. Um, I'll quickly go to the next issue, which is on employment and labor law issues. Uh, and you may also be familiar with some of these in, in, in your own practices. But we've seen that there've been, um, uh, you know, a number of labor and employment issues that have arisen in, in the last um, year since we've had these shutdowns. And this has led to uh, a number of government responses and government action uh, to, for instance, reduce or freeze operating costs and wage bills where developing countries need to pay particular attention to the informal sector of the economy. So we've seen in some countries where we see or whether it's wage subsidies for citizen employers of businesses affected by COVID-19, or we see um, benefits being given to small and medium-sized enterprises and just actions governments are taking to, to help employers to, to, to manage these wage bill issues. Um, we've also seen countries taking measures to deal with uncompensated absences and medical benefits affected by the COVID-19 crisis. And this has, been, has taken many different forms. For instance, in Argentina, uh, the Ministry of Labor, Employment and Social Security has granted exceptional and voluntary leave for employees returning from COVID-19 affected countries, uh, specifying that the leave should not affect the employees' regular remuneration and benefits. And all these things add up to, to sort of keep uh, jobs um, afloat. Uh, we've seen also measures to ensure equity and, and fairness in hiring decisions, especially with regard to vulnerable groups such as older workers or workers with disability. Um, uh, guidelines have been adopted on work health, uh, workplace health and safety, um, and we've seen, uh, you know, that we've also seen guidelines on how to, to or laws or regulations that govern how employers collect, receive, and utilize medical information about their employee status and protect the confidentiality of their medical information. Um, and for these kinds of regulations, it's, it's very important to consider their ap applicability to informal sectors as well as formal sectors. In, in, in the region, in one of the regions I work with, which is Africa region, uh, roughly eight out of 10 people are engaged in low wage informal employment. And so we, whenever we're looking at these um, employment um, related or wage bill related issues, it's very critical to look at the informal uh, sector as well. 
Probably one area that has, has kept us awake uh, is, is with respect to the health systems of, of countries. And so I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, the legal and policy challenges that we've been seeing in the health sector as we respond on the health uh, systems. Um, so I won't go into too much detail on the, on, the, on the first one, but I want to indicate a few areas where policy plays a key role in the COVID-19 uh, context. So we've seen, for instance, um, uh, legal policy issues on the availability of testing, you know, COVID-19 testing, as you recall, even in the US was a big issue. Uh, we've also seen uh, issues on manufacture, manufacture and trade in medical equipment, uh, which may involve mandatory production laws, regulatory approvals, import and export restrictions and tariffs. Um, research development and accessibility of vaccines is another critical area, intellectual property issues and compulsory, compulsory licensing of vital drugs, uh, for example, as it relates to the TRIPS agreement. With respect to vaccine deployment, um, uh, the, you know, like I said, this has been uh, the thing that has been occupying us for, for the last uh, few months uh, specifically. And this slide is simply meant to indicate the many opportunities for legal, regulatory and policy issues to arise throughout the vaccine development and distribution process. For example, issues arising relating to availability, accessibility and efficacy of vaccines, including the potential requirement by some countries of, of mandatory vaccination. I think you've been seeing and reading uh, of these green cards that are being given in some countries to show that you've been vaccinated. Um, and we've also seen the recurring issue of liability throughout different stages of the vaccine development and distribution process. Uh, overall, the bank's vaccine operations are aimed to support fair, broad, and fast access to effective and safe COVID-19 vaccines for low- and middle-income countries. And we're partnering, as I said, with the Vaccine Alliance, with COVAX, uh, with the African Union. It has a facility where they're trying to secure vaccines for Africa as well, and, and absolutely with our member countries on, on how to strengthen systems and vaccination systems to get uh, vaccines into, into arms. I want to touch on a, a specifically on an issue um, that really occupied a number of us for, uh, for, you know, I want to say from about September to up to now when we started knowing about potential liability issues once vaccines became available. Um, as we all know, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines are being developed and have been developed at an unprecedented speed. And this has involved high risks uh, for vaccine manufacturers, obviously, uh, because they know that they're working at speed. Maybe they haven't done the testing that they would have needed under normal circumstances. And so vaccine manufacturers want to shift the risk to governments. And this has required um, some creative approaches. Some manufacturers are requiring indemnity clauses. Actually, I should say all manufacturers are requiring indemnity clauses and other limitations of liability in contracts for the supply of vaccines. Um, some countries are resorting to contractual solutions, while other countries are passing new laws or adjusting their current legislation to address concerns by manufacturers. Um, some governments are looking at insurance, you know, potential for insurance, but you can imagine that this would uh, uh, involve such high premiums if there was to be uh, uh, insurance given. And so we have here one example of um, 
an indemnity clause in a contract with a vaccine manufacturer. Um, this is the advanced purchase agreement between the European Commission, Commission and CureVac AG, a vaccine manufacturer. As you can see, I mean, these indemnification clauses can be very broad and they apply to a, a range of entities. They, you know, they cover the contractor, the subcontractor and licensees, contract partners, affiliates, service providers, basically everything, everyone through the vaccine development process is uh, protected more or less under uh, such indemnification clauses on the basis of exceptional circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then you've seen, you know, here a New York Times article um, uh, recently, which, you know, highlights the concerns that, that people are having about these contracts that their governments are signing with vaccine manufacturers. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, their concerns from the public about transparency in these processes and the broad nature of these indemnities. Um, and then you see, uh, obviously, uh, you know, other, other headlines that we have been um, uh, encountering this uh, held, held to ransom uh, headline, which shows concerns about unequal bargaining power of, of a number of our countries. I mean, if you want the vaccine, you have to sign the contract, but you might be signing away everything, you know. Uh, and, and, and sometimes um, this unequal bargaining power has slowed down the process or, or prevented countries from coming to agreement altogether for critical vaccines. Another approach that we've seen has been for countries to pass legislation granting immunity to these vaccine manufacturers. Um, uh, we, we've seen, for instance, in the US, and one of the reasons the US was able to move very fast is they have the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, the PREP Act, which excludes claims for products necessary to control a public health crisis. So under this example, the US Department of Health and Human Services must issue a PREP Act declaration stating that there is an emergency covered by the act. And, and then you have the covered persons uh, are granted immunity, you know, covered persons in this case would be Pfizer and Moderna and others would be granted immunity from suit and liability under federal and state law with respect to any claim of loss related to the manufacturer. Um, uh, an exception to immunity is given in most cases, and this is you know, if it involves willful misconduct, but it's otherwise a very broad immunity that's given to vaccine manufacturers. Um, we've also seen no-fault compensation schemes that uh, some countries have, have, uh, have engaged in. And, um, and, and uh, you know, some argue that governments should not be held responsible for effects of vaccines brought, bought by the private sector, since it does not, the government doesn't have, a, does not have control over the handling of vaccines and would not have oversight if the vaccines were mishandled. But it is, um, governments have to, to, again, another balancing act. Do we play hardball and try and, and, and uh, avoid these uh, liabilities or indemn indemnity clauses? Or do we just take the vaccines? And we also what happened in, in Europe, in the EU, when they tried to negotiate hard. And as a result, there were significant delays in, in concluding contracts with manufacturers. So illegal issues have also arisen in relation to um, the COVAX facility, the COVID-19 vaccines global access, uh, which we all call COVAX. And this COVAX facility is a global mechanism to pool resources and demand for COVID-19 vaccines 
with the goal of accelerating availability of and equitable access to safe and efficacious vaccines in, in our poorer countries. Um, I, I listen a lot to the New York uh, Times uh, daily editorial and, and you know, a few weeks ago they covered the, uh, the origins of COVAX and, uh, and Bill Gates and Bill and Melinda Gates, how they thought, you know, the, their work over the years led them to be ready to convene partners to think about poorer countries uh, in this vaccine race. Um, and so the World Bank has been working very closely with, Voc with COVAX on this vaccine effort. And uh, as a result, we've seen um, through World Bank funding, a number of countries, a few countries already starting to receive um, COVAX vaccines uh, in, in, the re in recent weeks and more to come on that. Um, so, you know, we see here an overview of the process to receive COVID-19 vaccines through COVAX. It's led, um, uh, it's co-led by uh, the Coalition for Epidemic, Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, CEPI, Gavi, and WHO, alongside with a delivery partner, UNICEF. Um, in July, very quickly, the Gavi board approved Gavi as a legal entity to administer the COVAX facility. And it also critically established this uh, COVAX AMC. And this is a financing mechanism to accelerate and reserve COVID-19 vaccines to ensure that the lower and middle income economies, which we call the AMC 92 countries, as well as, as other eligible economies to have access to COVID-19 vaccines at the same time as wealthier economies. So COVAX looks at IDA eligibility, IDA being the, the arm of the World Bank Group, um, and those countries then uh, can have access to these free vaccines through AMC, uh, through COVAX AMC 92. Um, and, and so it's, it's been a good thing to see countries putting in money, donor countries putting in money into this COVAX facility so that other uh, countries can have access. We talked about indemnity uh, before, but just to, to mention here that the COVAX facility similarly requires indemnification of vaccine manufacturers by AMC participating countries through contractual documents or the passing of, of legislation if required. So even though they're getting free vaccines, they still have to indemnify the manufacturers. Um, then uh, in addition, COVAX came up with a no-fault compensation program uh, to compensate individuals in AMC participating countries who suffer serious adverse effects resulting in permanent impairment or death associated with a COVAX vaccine or its administration. This compensation is meant to comprise full and final settlement of any such claims. And this was very critical if um, uh, countries were going to participate. There had to be some sort of scheme, otherwise the AMC 92 countries would not be able to cope with uh, claims uh, of, like, you know, once anyone is injured with, God forbid, doesn't happen, but injured as a result of these vaccines. Then moving on very quickly to privacy and data protection concerns. I'm sure you've been thinking about this a lot at Cornell, um, starting from testing and who has COVID and now obviously on, um, on who has the vaccine. And, and you know, we've seen this um, contact tracing and surveillance, either using QR codes and smartphone apps. And, uh, and, and really to complicate this whole thing is that they're they're not generally accepted international guidelines on the collection, use, and, and sharing of personal data. 
And, and, and we've also seen very clearly through this process that there is a big digital divide where not everyone has access to the same tools and information through digital means. And so these privacy concerns uh, as lawyers in the institution, have re we've really spent a lot of time thinking about how to support our countries and how to support citizens in countries from um, their data being misused. Um, and so, you know, just a few key takeaways. All, the, all these issues are relevant to the World Bank's COVID operations, um, including policy-based, what we call policy-based operations, or whether it's um, social protection projects, vaccine financing projects, or projects supporting small and medium-sized enterprises. Um, and they are also relevant to appraising and mitigating social risks across a, a range of bank operations. And, you know, I realize this, we've thrown a lot of information at you during a very short amount of time. Um, so let me just, if you want, give you a few key takeaways from a policy perspective, um, uh, and, uh, and then we can move on to the questions. So in the immediate term, it's important for countries to anchor COVID-19 responses in clear legal authority. I think when we've seen countries just, you know, announce lockdowns or um, close businesses without a sort of clear legal authority, this has led to issues as we've seen. Uh, it, very importantly, our, our regional and international regulatory coordination uh, in a number of areas, whether it is vaccine um, uh, efficacy, vaccine, you know, deciding which vaccines should be approved, it is see that sort of coordination is really critical. We have seen key policy developments that are crucial to strengthening justice delivery systems. We have also seen business specific responses meant to reduce transaction costs um, uh, and regula regulatory burdens and ease tax regulations reporting ETC. We've also seen the impact of pre-existing debt, you know, that the debt has had on countries' ability to respond to new challenges. And, and we've talked about debt suspension, debt transparency, ETC. Uh, we've seen legal and policy, policy solutions for labor and employment issues have been implemented, are still being implemented as we uh, economies reopen and recover after the pandemic. And moving forward, we've seen that it's very important to address data protection and privacy issues, including establishing a legal regime for digital infrastructure and encouraging development of international guidelines on the collection, use, and sharing of, of personal data. In the medium term, um, countries may consider adopting specialized laws for diseases and pandemics in order, in order to mitigate some of the legal is issues we have identified here. And, um, and these laws could cover a wide range of issues. I, I think as policymakers, as policy students, you can imagine at the wide range of topics that could be covered to get us ready for the next pandemic. And so, you know, let me stop here and just say that, you know, I hope I have given you a, a, a taste of the bank's general thinking, which informs our operational work and, and can help to inform member countries who are thinking about how to continue to address these issues and, and hopefully to address them before the next uh, pandemic comes up. So let me stop here and, and turn it back to you, Cosmas. Thanks. Thank you so much. I think it's been a fascinating conversation, deep, resonating, and covering the entire field in a sense. That overview is something we can take home 
And from there, we can continue our search for sustainable answers to some of the most important policy issues of our time. I would want to thank the editorial board for supporting all the efforts to put this together. I would want to thank especially our speakers, um, Chief Musime and, uh, and Paige, who joined us to make this possible. I also recognize the director of the Emerging Markets Institute here at Cornell at Johnson thank School you. of Business, Lourdes Casanova. She's been quite a mentor for many of us who are fellows of the Institute. Um, understanding the, the intersection between policy and businesses and how it all has ramifications for development and society. We are excited to continue these conversations and dialogues and deliberations because we do know that it is in the fountain of dialogues and deliberations that ideas for development and policymaking are crystallized. We won't shy away, we will continue the conversation. And we thank everybody who came. And I'm sure you can also listen to these asynchronously at your time. Perhaps I should also say that we are at a moment in history when our critical role, critical interventions as individuals and institutions is indispensable to human flourishing. And maybe that's enough, enough reason for us to give our commitments to this search for answers to these interventions for development. Join us next time when you see our advert. We will still be reaching you live from Ethica, New York, from Cornell Institute for Public Affairs. And please do keep in touch with us if you have any questions. Thank you, um, Chief Musime and Paige for joining us, for making this possible. When we call on you again, please do join us. And if our Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cornell Policy Review Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you would like to receive notifications for future podcasts and articles, please subscribe to our mailing list at cornellpolicyreview.com. Ask us to take you out for a coffee. We'll be happy to do so. Thank you for joining us. Please join us next time at Cornell Policy Review, Issues in Public Policy Dialogue. I am Cosmas Amazing. I'll see you again soon.